0: Understanding how the
1: world works. Science is a vehicle for knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science
2: is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We
1: remember those who prepared the way. Seeing through them also. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everybody. Welcome to the March instalment of Beer with the Blue Model Space Institute of Science. This podcast highlights the thoughts, science, and philosophies of members of our Institute, as well as occasional guests. This month, we are very pleased to have our very own Dr. Jim Cleese, who's going to talk to us about an exciting topic. But first, I'll give it up to Jacob for this month's beverage.
2: Thanks, Sanjoy. So um, last month, um, Dr. John Petters talked to us and and gave us a wonderful talk about his experiences as a scientist working in D.C. and getting involved in policy. And he unfortunately couldn't make it to present his favorite beverage. He's leaving the Everglades right now. Um, but he did send me his, his uh, beverage. So um, the beverage is Krupnik. And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it entirely right because it's a Polish word. So Krupnik or Krupnik. But popular in Poland and Lithuania, Krupnik is a sweet vodka made from honey and a multitude of herbs. Buy a bottle for mom. Drinking vodka doesn't get any easier than this. In winter, hot krupnik is a popular personal defroster with hot water, lemon, and mulling spices added. You'll often see it set on fire with coffee beans floating in it. Beware. So it's probably a little hard to find in the States. I mean, if you travel to Europe or if you're in a real specialty shop, um, I think John actually did try to make a, a U.S. version of this and set it on fire once. And uh, I can't say it worked so well. So you know, drink Krupnik at your own risk. But I, I'm sure if you get the real thing, it's great. Um, so okay, so um, obey your
1: local laws when drinking alcoholic beverages. Obey your local
2: laws. <laughs> yes, indeed. So with uh, that, I would like to uh, introduce Dr. Jim Cleaves. Jim, I'm sorry. I never asked you for your biography. I forgot this was my job to introduce you. (laughs) You can make one up. Um, But Dr. (laughs) Jim Cleaves is a research scientist with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. He uh, does work on the uh, origin of life and is here to tell us about the chemistry of the possible. What are your other affiliations, though, Jim? If I could ask Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, ELSI, and IAS. Institute so, ELSI for Advanced is
0: Earth Life Science Institute, which is based at the Tokyo Institute of Technology.
2: Excellent.
0: In, in Tokyo, Japan. Mm-hmm. And the IAS is the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey.
2: Okay, and you have affiliations with all three of those right now? With well, all three, yeah. That's excellent. Well, yeah. we're glad to have you here, and I'm looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say.
0: Well, thanks. Um, yeah, my pleasure to be here. I've listened to a few of these these podcasts, so I have a rough idea of how you go about this, but I'm going to give you a, an overview of some recent work we've been doing, which is really about making maps of molecules, specifically alpha amino acids. So if you're not a biochemist, uh, it turns out all life on Earth makes its coated proteins out of a common set of 20 alpha amino acids. But the question me and some colleagues were asking is why that particular set of 20 out of all the chemical possibilities? So I'll, I'll throw some big numbers at you in a little bit, but we have a good reason to believe that that, that is a very, very small set of the possible states of matter that you could call alpha amino acids. And this kind of gets at a question that is similar what is, what is the, the limits of determinism and evolution in chemical systems? So if you, for example, take the periodic table, there are about 98 naturally occurring elements. And that's it, right? And those are simply determined by integer number of protons, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Those are the working determinant units of matter, as far as we know, in the universe. And if you want to take those up one level of organization, you can ask what sorts of minerals can you form from those. And it turns out you can make about 4,400 different naturally occurring minerals from those 98 elements. So there's some combinatorial explosion of possibilities of the way you can recombine simple elements. But when you get into um, organic compounds, the numbers just grow exponentially faster. And I mean, this has a lot, of, uh, a lot to do with the different um, valence states of carbon or oxidation states that it can be in, as well as the way it can bond with many different elements due to its sort of intermediate electronegativity relative to the other elements. So just as an example... Baalstein database of organic compounds has about 10 to the 7 compounds that have been cataloged since 1771. And if we take a simple molecular formula, something like c thirty H62, there are about 4 billion isomers of that molecule. So organic chemistry just blows inorganic chemistry out of the water in terms of the, the number of different combinations you can make. Um, Sorry, did this, you say
1: 4 billion isomers?
0: 4 billion isomers of a single formula. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. Whether all of them have ever existed is another question. Those are, those are graph theoretical possible combinations, right? But so, you know, we're the blue marble. I, I believe that the phrase sort of comes from this 1972 uh, Apollo image of the Earth from space. Was That's sort of, right. Sort of, the term got bandied about. And, you know, what's interesting about that is that is, in a sense, a map. But before we could even validate our maps of the Earth by sending things into space or into the sky to take real pictures, we constructed pretty good maps um, on the ground, right? They, They started out creaky, and they got better and better. So what we tried to do here was construct a map of all the possible alpha amino acids, which would then give us some context to say, okay, well, where are the biological ones in that context? Okay? And if there are some special properties of that 20 compared to the the possible ones, whether that might have implications for whether life anywhere would naturally gravitate towards the same set out of the enormous number of possibilities, or whether it's really an arbitrary choice of possibilities. The point being, the the periodic table is quantized, right? There There are integer values that elements have to have. It turns out that's also true with molecules, that not every combination of atoms represents a plausible molecular structure. So we set out using structure generation software. So basically you input a molecular formula, which you can generate randomly or, or through a certain range, so CX, H sub Y, N sub Z, O sub Z prime. And you input the formulas. And then using basically the rules of, of electron sharing between atoms, it generates all the possible structures that satisfy Lewis electron pairing rules. And then as a further stipulation you can say, among all those structures, we're only interested in the ones that have an alpha amino acid motif. So if you're not a biochemist and not familiar with this, grab a pen and a piece of paper, and I can walk you through this. Start out by drawing an N, and if you draw a line from that N and connect it to a C, and if you draw another line from that C and connect it to a COOH, that is essentially the backbone skeleton of an alpha amino acid. If you go to that middle C, which is Represents a carbon atom. It's not the 262 Hertz middle C. You're going to draw one line off that going to a hydrogen atom and another line going to an R group. And so in organic chemistry, we use R as a placeholder for a variable structure. So that's essentially where all the variability in the, the coded protein amino acids comes from, differences in that R group side chain. So we started out with. The, the minimum number of carbon atoms you can have and still be an alpha amino acid, which is two. And it turns out there's one unique organic structure, which is an alpha amino acid, which has two carbons, and that is glycine. And we went all the way up to uh, structures with 11 carbon atoms, which is the number of carbon atoms in the largest coated amino acid, tryptophan. So obviously, if you don't limit yourself to some atom cap, the set is infinitely large, right? You can always add one more atom. So we're exploring the space, between C2 and C11, which I'll, I'll show you in a second, is already very, very large. So that's the input, the formula range, put that in, certain number of nitrogen atoms, uh, enough hydrogens to saturate all the bonds, a given number of oxygen atoms. And then we, we came up with two sets of formal rules to do this. It turns out there are many ways you can, you can define a set that will include the twenty either very minimally or more completely and the library size grows depending on how restrictive you are about it. The smallest set we constructed had 3,846 molecules, which is, which is a fairly restricted set that's very closely similar to the biological set. And we constructed a larger set, which allows for more variation in structure, but will still, given a, a set of predictive rules, generate all of the 20 inherently. And that comes up with 121,000 structures. So something we noticed really quick when we were doing this um, was that unless you impose certain other structural restrictions on these sets, they can grow exponentially very quickly, and consequently your computation time grows very quickly. So you end up making a trade-off between having a complete calculation or something that's simply too large to handle. Um, pardon,
3: so that I understand this yes. hundred and twenty thousand number you said. Yeah, that's the total number of stable structures with up to eleven carbons attached to the R group of the amino acid.
0: That's right. With an additional restriction that once a molecule contains eight or more carbon atoms, we said it has to have an aromatic ring.
3: Okay. So six. As of I'm carbons- wondering, how many of those would actually be likely to be synthesized?
0: Well, in so an here's abiotic here's- environment. Yeah, it's a good question. So there's two ways you can look at this. One is, as far as we know, prebiotic synthesis makes about 10 or 12 of the coded amino acids, depending on which studies you believe and if they all occur in one set. So the surmise is the other eight or 10 are products of biological evolution. And probably things like tryptophan, tyrosine, phenylalanine, the aromatics, uh, probably histidine, are things that developed in the context of a functioning biochemistry. So There is definitely not a complete overlap of the biological set with the abiological set. And what's more, living organisms make at least 500 additional alpha amino acids as secondary metabolites that they never incorporate into their proteins. You essentially have this initial set, if you you believe in Oparin's heterotrophic hypothesis idea that life began from environmentally supplied organic compounds. It had some initial set to draw from. It started using those gradually developed a few more, and then stopped evolving them.
3: I guess my question was, how many of those 120,000 possibilities actually existed in the prebiotic environment? I know from looking at meteorites, we see something like maybe 70 or 80. I don't know the exact number. We don't see 100,000.
0: So that's a good question, too. Now, the thing with a meteorite you have to also bear in mind is, uh, I think all the isomers up to C5 have been identified, and then a, a sprinkling of the C6s and so forth. So you run into the problem that as something grows larger, there are more ways you can connect it, right? There are more isomers. And at the same time, and it's something like a meteorite, as, as something grows larger, the abundance of an individual component drops as a sort of power law, right? So you're, you're dealing with a problem where you have more and more species that are less and less abundant. So identifying them becomes very difficult. So that number, say 70, that's been identified in meteorites, is really, it's, it's really an analytical threshold and not necessarily a true abundance threshold. Does that, does that answer your question?
3: I think so. It's just probably so, so a huge point should, to make clear to mean, the listeners 100,000 100, elements, 100,000 amino acids, only a certain number of them were actually abundant in the initial environment that led to Absolutely. whatever... That likely that,
0: add. That's true. But I think, I think regardless of, of which ones were, and I, I would say probably that the real number is somewhere in the thousands, certainly not all equally abundant, but even that set of a few thousand probably doesn't include the entire biological set of 20. So if you're making a Venn diagram, the, the biological set still encompasses a space that is biologically innovative. I think I, I, think I got it now. Thank okay. you. Okay. So, so among that 120,000 Probably a big chunk of that includes things that are not only not abiotic, but also not biological. But the point being that we really don't know what biology is capable of. If if there were you know the right evolutionary sequence or the right selection pressures, I mean, in principle, biochemistry can make almost any structure it wants to, right? I mean, if you look at the complexity of things like like taxol or various antibiotics. They're extremely unusual molecules that you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict would fall out of a chemistry. The point being there that as long as a structure is adaptive and there's a synthetic pathway that can be evolved to make it, um, there's no reason biology couldn't develop other molecules, which it apparently has. Just for some reason, it doesn't incorporate those other 500 amino acids that it knows how to make into its coded proteins. An important point about that, too, the 121,000, like I said, We added this limitation because we were getting this exponential isomer growth with with each additional carbon atom. We added the stipulation that everything from C8 and higher had to have an aromatic ring. And that basically collapses the possibility space by orders and orders of magnitude. So we're estimating, without generating absolutely every structure, that the true structure space is probably on the order of about $2 alpha amino acids from C2 to C11. What's interesting about this then is essentially a chemical structure is just a connectivity map of atoms, right? So you can say this hydrogen is attached to this carbon, this carbon is attached to this carbon, and so forth. And that's a two-dimensional connectivity map. But knowing what we know about bond angles and and so forth, you can convert that into a three-dimensional structure, like a real three-dimensional molecular structure. And knowing what we know about atomic electronegativities and so forth, you can say something about the expected properties of that molecule, right? The real physical properties, its solubility, things like its acid dissociation constant. And now you can create a, if you will, a a chemical property map of the total space that could conceivably be covered by what is an alpha amino acid. And you can look at how the biological set of 20 is distributed within that space, okay? And what it turns out to be far as we can tell so far, with respect to certain properties, is that the biological coded amino acids are spread very evenly and very widely throughout that space. Okay, So they're not clumped together in a little corner of it in terms of of functionality or properties. They're they're spread very widely so as to distribute themselves, very widely over the range of of possibilities. So what we're really working on now is trying to find the the signal in this set amongst the, the hypothetical set. Um, and see if we can say anything about the sorts of selective pressures that would have led to the usage of this set of 20, among all of the possibilities. And it's, it seems likely that there's more than one factor that influenced this, right? It's not just chemical properties. It could also be metabolic cost of synthesis, um, stability, things like this. And we're processing all of this very actively now. And the other interesting thing about this is you really can do this sort of analysis for any type of molecular structure class. So we're hoping to move into some other dimensions with that. And that said, I think I'll, I'll wrap up and open the floor for discussion.
1: Thank you, Jim. The floor is open for questions. Uh, I guess I have one to start things off. You mentioned that when the carbon is greater than eight, you specify a constraint that it requires an aromatic ring. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, this is one of the other problems we ran into, um, naturally when you start looking, you're trying to construct a set that the set of rules you're including will also generate the biological 20. So whatever rules you're applying are not so restrictive that they're excluding the thing you're trying to compare against. But then you start to sort of tailor your set to the attributes of the thing that you're trying to compare it to rather than the complete chemistry space. And you know part of the reason is observational. We notice everything that's C9 or greater in biochemistry is an aromatic amino acid there are no C8s. C7, there are chemical reasons for thinking that wouldn't be a good restriction at that size range. So it's, it's a combination of saying maybe when biochemistry gets to a certain size, it's only really interested in aromatic structures. But partly it's a computational shortcut as well.
3: Couldn't it also be a sort of a founder effect? You start off with a whole bunch of polycyclic aromatics in the environment, and hey, all these nice carbon rings are floating around. Well, it's harder to split them apart than it is to just stick something under the edge.
0: Yeah. Well, so this is is an interesting question. When you think about metabolism, one of the earliest models for how metabolism would have developed was by Norm Harwitz in 1945. And, you know, he was very much using Oparin's model that basically the environment supplied everything. Um, And then as, you know, organisms started replicating themselves, they used up the environmental resources. And as they depleted a the component from the environment, they had to develop a catalyst that can convert a precursor into that component. And then as they used up that precursor, they developed a catalyst that could convert the precursor of the precursor. So the biosynthetic pathways were developed backwards from whatever the environment supplied. Now, this is very deterministic. It assumes that the, the environment supplied every compound that you see in modern biochemistry. And I think that's evidently not true. So the other model is large aspects of metabolism developed in the forward direction. So you had sort of sloppy catalysts that converted something that was available in the cell into a novel product. And depending on whether that product was useful or not for the cell, that pathway got reinforced. In that case, what you're doing is developing in the forward direction, and you're you're developing novel structures that are adaptive. How that's relevant to your point, it's very difficult to say that once an organism is totally self-sufficient... And it's decoupled from needing environmental precursors that it's not free to just make up whatever new biosynthetic pathways and whatever new products that it self-constructs. So what you're saying is one possibility. The other possibility is it's coincidental. Ring structures are used
3: in, they're used in proteins, they're used in sugars, they're used in nucleic acids, they're used in pretty much everything, as I understand the biochemistry.
0: Specifically aromatic rings. They tend to be more stable than non-aromatic rings, tend to be more hydrophobic, and certainly we do see that these structures get included as the, uh, grouped as the hydrophobic amino acids, right? Among the hydrophobic amino acids. And they seem to play roles in creating either nucleation sites for protein folding, the sites of hydrophobic collapse, or creating little hydrophobic pockets for catalysis. So five and six-member rings are very common motifs because they're, they're stable motifs. But they also have chemical properties that can be adaptively useful
3: but you could, in theory, construct a biochemistry without carbon rings, if I'm understanding you correctly. It's just we don't see that's
0: that. A, that's the question. So, so, another level you can look at this is what are the chemical properties of that set that allow proteins to have the adaptive functions that they do? So, certain functional groups that are adaptively useful, are those the simplest ones that can, can open that sort of chemical functionality to you? Whereas it's sort of arbitrary and there's one right next to it. In structure space, that's just as good. And if you were to rerun the tape of life, you'd end up with a different set of 20 or maybe a set of 18 or maybe a set of 24. Or are there really core chemical properties that biochemistry has stumbled upon and kept? And regardless of who did the stumbling or when, you'd stumble into the same structure space. So that's
1: what you're after with that map, right? You start to really understand why biology stumbled upon the 10 plus the abiotic ones.
0: Yeah, or, or, I mean, to my mind, like uh, was mentioned earlier, I mean, there's at least 60 other ones in meteorites that, that don't get used. What's wrong with them?
2: So, Jim, one thing I have along those lines is, could you maybe comment on how, like, how has Earth's environment affected the, uh, the subset of molecules that we ended up with that are, that are useful for biology? And, you know, maybe how would that set be a little different on a, an extrasolar planet?
0: Something I'm starting to get the impression now is that I would be surprised if early solar system organic chemistry isn't pretty similar almost everywhere. So There are actually
3: reasons why we expect it to be different in some significant ways. For example? If you look at a lot of stars, you see very significant changes in the photospheric ratios of oxygen and carbon.
0: Yeah, but I think at the level of organic chemistry, that doesn't Yeah, We have
3: more... Oxygen than carbon, so we get all these oxides. Yeah. And then if you look at stars where they're dominated carbon, maybe and they form. This is not in the core, which is constantly changing around. it's up on the surface where it hasn't ever it hasn't ever fused. You'd assume but, that the planets may have more carbon than oxygen, which will change the geology and geochemistry. That might propagate over to biology, but I don't know.
0: I see I, I think the well this is one of the things is the 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 structure space is quantized. Not every single molecule is possible. There are certain ones that are very easy to get to and very stable. From the standpoint of the organic chemistry, once you're, you're talking about reactive carbon, so it has to be things like methane or carbon monoxide, the reactive chemistry space, I think, is, is sort of constrained. But will no so,
3: abundances of things other than carbon change the set of most common amino acids and whatever other compounds you may start with?
0: Well, this is funny. This is something we're looking at right now with Titan simulations, And, you know, one and a half atmospheres of 98% nitrogen and, you know, a couple of percent methane versus laboratory Miller-Urey type experiments people do in the lab where it's, say, half an atmosphere that's 50-50 methane nitrogen. The the product mix is extraordinarily similar. And, you know, one's done at room temperature and one's done at minus 78 degrees Celsius. So there are some variables that seem to be very important and some that don't. And it's almost like there's a bottleneck past the ratios of hydrogen and nitrogen or i'm sorry carbon and nitrogen methane and nitrogen if you want that really govern the, re- the downstream reactive chemistry that has quite a large consequence right
1: if all if from what you're saying all biochemistry operates with the same set of amino acids like i mean michael brought some good points as to why that might not be but you mentioned that that could not be the case and that biochemistry would operate on a mm-hmm. common set of building blocks
0: so here's the question. I mean, I didn't, I didn't really get into this, but on the, the little flyer, there's also the example of the two groups of people who have independently developed the concept of a blowgun, right? And one is in Southeast Asia and the other is in South America. And it, it seems pretty evident that they were developed independently. Two different kinds of plants that are used as the basis for the blowgun. They use different types of poisons on their darts. One comes from an insect and one comes from a frog. But it's this amazingly convergent thing. That's kind of complicated. So at one level, you have this very deterministic chemistry, and then you get into the realm of biochemistry, and I don't think we really have a good sense of how variable it is at that level, right? And then you get to higher levels of organization, and you start seeing things like biological convergence. So there is definitely some environmental impact on the way things work at a macro level.
3: Although I noticed one thing. You had the example of biological convergence in terms of you had the shark and a bony fish and a dolphin, and they all look kind of similar. Yeah, but you also have squid,
0: which squid also swim pretty
3: fast, and they're constructed rather differently.
0: Well, the the one that's not a vertebrate, right?
3: So, so well, there may be some things we can say about the biochemistry, maybe similar.
0: Yeah,
3: you get beyond that, and all sorts of hysteresis things come in.
0: Yeah, this this is the question. I mean, how much predictability and how much absolute unpredictability is there in a system at this level? At, at the level of of, of functioning metabolism, I think there may be an amazing amount of plasticity and accident in our own history here. I mean, for the sake of finding life on another planet, I certainly hope that's the case. It'll be a lot neater if we find a microbe on Mars that has a completely novel biochemistry than something that by, you know, just the the rules of evolution ends up almost exactly like us would would be very disappointing, wouldn't it?
2: It sounds like from what you're saying, though, maybe it has to be kind of almost one or the other, like, like either very molecularly similar to us or maybe very drastically different, but perhaps not in between.
3: I I, I don't know the answer. I, I guess think, that might I not think, even
2: think, be true. It could be in between.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, even, even if the like, molecular like, structure is different, all of the larger scale biological stuff is going to... Even if the even if the bio, basic backbone is similar, the larger yeah. scale biological structure sure. can be very and should be expected to be very very, very different.
2: Yeah, that, the the phylogeny I'd expect to be the same, but well, we is, see that on Earth, the phylogeny on Earth is all
3: over the place too. Exactly. exactly. For example, well, you see the squid and you see the bony fish, right? Because one didn't have a backbone to start with.
0: Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, int- interestingly, I mean the example with the bony fish and the dolphin and the ichthyosaur. I mean, they're really shaped by hydrodynamic forces right i mean that's that's what they have adapted to is their their lifestyle so i mean there is some the organisms have to adapt to their environment and i guess there's a question of how different can planetary environments be um and especially when you're thinking about at the the cellular level as opposed to the macroorganism level assuming life has to be cellular
3: i'm pretty sure you need an inside and an outside at least right. the organism is separate from the environment
0: Okay, and you're going to need an energy source. I think now you're, getting, you're starting to get constrained by certain rules of chemistry and physics. It's, it's either light or some sort of chemical oxidant.
3: Well, it doesn't have to be an oxidant, but yeah, you're right. You have, some product, form of it's energy.
0: Some environmental energy source, sure. Which, which, you know, I don't know that there's liable to be millions of those in the universe. Maybe a few score. There's stars,
3: which produce light. Then there's all the chemistry that you get on the planets from that light.
0: Yeah, but so, I mean... Well, my, assuming
3: you're bound to planets...
0: I'm talking about planetary surfaces. I mean, I think there's only so many, you know, small molecules you can really use as fuel, right? Environmentally available ones, which are sort of governed by mineralogy and the periodic table and so forth. That's one of the
3: reasons why you might expect things to be different if you had a carbide-dominated planet. hmm. Nobody really knows what the geochemistry is like on a planet where everything is dominated by carbon bonded to silicon and aluminum and titanium and so on. So what? Because there's very little little data on this because we don't have exoplanets up close and personal to study
0: yeah i don't know much about carbide planets so i don't know what's what's
3: What's that nobody really does we see planets around stars that have lots more carbon than oxygen in their photospheres Mm. and then we extrapolate from that to say that the planet has more carbon than oxygen and so you've got carbide dominated geochemistry other than oxide dominated geochemistry in the best case, all we know about these things is their sizes and their masses and their if we're really lucky in some cases, I suppose if you get a spectrum of the atmosphere, but I don't know that anybody's done that. At so, least not for anything other than a gas giant, where of course it's hydrogen and helium dominated anyway.
0: Well what, what percentage of this planet would be carbon by mass?
3: About the same as the percentage of the Earth that is oxygen by mass.
0: So what's that, twenty five percent or fifty percent? Something like that. Yeah.
3: And you might expect to get less water and more methane and CO2. Well, one or the other, I would imagine, right? Question of where what oxygen you have is getting soaked. If it's getting bounded into CO2 because there's so much carbon around, then there's none left to soak up the hydrogen, and you end up getting methane and less water. Yeah, I would think the geochemistry of this is not well known at all because we just don't yeah. have an example up close and personal to study.
0: No, and I'm sure the high pressure behavior of this stuff is pretty odd too, right?
3: We know a bit, there's a bit of information about how particular carbide minerals behave under high pressure, mm. so drill bits out of them and so on, but yeah. large-scale geophysics, yeah. I know we're working on that, but...
1: Well, that's definitely a uh, good place to pause and think about the diversity of planets that may exist out there and what that will mean for life. Do we have any uh, last questions from the audience? Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights. This is really interesting and for everybody's participation. Look forward to next month. Uh, Jacob, who's online?
2: Next month is David Grinspoon.
1: David Grinspoon, the man himself. Look forward to it. Uh, thank you all so much and you, see you guys. next month.
2: Listeners, tune in next month to hear our next installment of Beer with uh, Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Thanks for joining us.
3: See you, everyone. Hi. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world.
0: Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science and with it we can improve our lives.